1: He's a research entomologist and lead scientist in the Imported Fire Ant and Household Insects Unit of the USDA, United States Department of Agriculture. Um, so we're going to talk about his work. So, Dave, thanks for coming.
2: Oh, thank you for having me.
1: So why is there a special designation, it seems like, for uh, imported fire ants?
2: Well, it's um, a very special insect. It's uh, one of the few uh, pests. It's a, it's a major invasive ant. That has both, you know, agricultural impacts as well as public health impacts. So it covers, as well as ecological impacts. But you know that public health aspect I think makes it unique among one of these pests. So way back when, when it first entered the U.S. and this in the 1930s, you know, start to spread. It's a stinging insect, and you know, and it's visible. They make these uh, nests that have mounds that you can easily identify, and they're very aggressive. They come swarming out, and they'll sting you. Lots of them. And so it became a political issue also. So um, there are attempts to control it way back in the 40s, 30s, and then um, and then World War II came. And so the research on that kind of got put on hold. And then after the war, there was, an, again, renewed emphasis on this. And this is in the South, and it's been spreading. So in the 50s, it spread through the nursery industry. It's been documented, you know, throughout the South, through all the southern states. And then, you know, the congressmen they definitely knew the impact just from their constituents as well as probably personally, because again, these are stinging insects. who get onto your um, family farm or wherever you live and you'll know that they're there. And so there was a lot of pressure to try and do something about this. And so this uh, imported fire ant was designated as a a target. And so that's where our funding comes from till this day, you know. So um,
1: great question. Do they bite or do they sting? And what do they use to, to either bite or sting.
2: Okay, good question. Um, So actually they do both, but what you're really feeling is a sting. So they have a stinger, you know, just like a bee, but they also have jaws. Like all, all insects have jaws, but so the ant will grab hold of your skin with its jaw that kind of stabilizes itself, and then it'll turn its abdomen down, which has a stinger at the end, and it'll sting you. And what's interesting is if you let it, it will just it'll sting you, pull it out, and it'll rotate, and it'll sting you, and it'll pull it out. And then if you let it go, it'll make a nice little circle of stings. But usually after the first one or two, you'll you you'll brush it off. But if you're incapacitated, or you don't really know about it, you'll have a nice little ring of stings. And eventually, these stings will develop into an itching pustule. And um, you'll have a little white head, and that's kind of diagnostic for the red imported fire ant. And then you'll scratch it, and it gets infected, and you'll leave a scar. And you know, that'll take about maybe seven to 10 days to run through that process. So it's very irritating. And if you're allergic to it, yeah, people have died from anaphylactic uh, shock. So in, in nature,
1: I mean, I don't, I don't think these ants were designed to sting people. What do they prey on?
2: Well, for fire ants, they, they prey on many things. They're pretty omnivorous. So they'll prey on other insects. They'll prey on on uh, wildlife. It's It's um, been shown that they'll attack, like say, uh, Young quail, things nesting or uh, sea turtles when they're coming out of their eggs, even in the farm situation, um, the cows are calving. Um, they'll attack the uh, the calves and they'll attack their eyes. You know anything that's kind of uh, moist and you know, have a mucus, and then they can actually blind them. So a lot of ants will do this, especially invasive ants, to get into the wildlife areas. They'll attack the, I guess uh, things that can't defend themselves very well and they're kind of immobile. So it runs the gamut from other insects to big vertebrates, reptiles, things like that. And also they damage crops. So um, So the stings uh, are not, they won't damage things with their stinger with the crops, but they'll chew on that, chew on crops. Wow. Where do they originate from? Originally they came from South America. So I think uh, some of the other scientists in our group found that they probably, um, northern Argentina area, at least the ones that they can track back genetically, they call it the Formosa area. So that's... And you know, but it, it, it got shipped in cargo and through uh, Alabama and Portomobile, and, and it's spread from there. And there's some evidence that they may have other introductions too.
1: So they've been in the US for yeah, 80, 90 years. Um, where have they right. settled? Are they all over the US or do they stay in the southern area? Where are they?
2: Yeah, so they're in the southern area. So they guess they got as far north right now as almost, I, th- I would think, up to the middle counties of Tennessee. There's some in Virginia in the uh, Tidewater area along the coast, which is a little bit more, a little warmer. It goes across through Texas. It's in California. Anything south, it's there. It's, it's well-established. You know, years ago, they, you know, initially, there was a time when they were trying to eradicate it, but it, it's too far gone now to try and do that type of uh, program, trying to, to get rid of it.
1: So why do they call them fire ants? Because the, the sting feels like a fire
2: yeah, right. that's what I've heard. It feels, um, it, it burns, it's intense and it's it is fast. So I guess, you know, you can relate it to like a, a bee sting. I think sometimes bee sting's a little more intense, at least for me. But for fire ants, if you don't, if you're not aware of it, you step on a nest, they'll just crawl up your leg and they'll start stinging all over. And so, you know, someone like me, I, I'm used to it. So I'm, my head's always on the ground, you know, eyes are on the ground looking for these things. Because, <laughs> uh yeah, they can be very nasty. Oh, you've been
1: stung before by... Uh... By fire ants and bees.
2: Oh yeah. Uh, there's another scientist who published his, his Sting Index and he rated the different venomous in- insects and how intense their stings were and I forgot where fire ants are, but they're definitely not the worst, but they're not they're significant.
1: It sounds like those people that eat, you know, the hottest chilies, they rate them by an index. Like so is there a Scoville index or a sting index?
2: I think it was a sting index. I I don't recall the, the details of it, but he, he wrote a book on it. It's um Justin Smith. Or Schmidt, Justin Schmidt. Yeah.
1: Interesting. What does the US government or the USDA do with fire ants? Do they just monitor where they occur and do they try to like mitigate them or stamp them out and destroy nests? Like, what what do they do?
2: Yeah. So I guess USDA has a long history of of trying to control the ant along with the universities. But, you know, early on there were some eradication programs that were involved in. So they were trying to figure out ways to control it. So initially back then in the 50s or, you know, 30s 40s they had you know they started starting to get to that pesticide age so they have contact insecticide and insecticides that will kill the insect on contact and and so early on there were some of those insecticides being used and, and some of them turned out to be very highly toxic to mammals and so that was stopped and so they're trying to figure out better ways and so they eventually developed um, these ant baits which use the natural foraging behavior of ants to disperse um, the toxicants so it's like a you know can so it's a it's a food that the ants like to eat. In this case, it's uh, soybean oil, and they'll dissolve a toxin into the oil, and then put that oil with the toxin onto this corn grit. So now you'll you'll see these in the stores. It's a, it's like a granular product, and they'll you spread it on the ground and or around the nest, and the ants will think that's as food. They'll pick it up, carry it back to their their colony, and they'll dispense. They'll suck the oil out of that grit, and they'll dispense it to the rest of the colony, and eventually will spread throughout the colony and then it'll, it'll hopefully they'll get to the queen and eventually kill the queen and as well as many other, the rest of the colony members. That's what's developed you know, at the USDA. And there have been various products uh, since then of different types of active ingredients that work on different aspects of the ants. Like uh, there's insect growth regulating as- active ingredients, which inhibits their development. So it's a different mode of action. So things like that. And then we work on ways to, to utilize that and then we eventually moved into things like um, biological control agents. We're using other, in this case, other insects or pathogens to try and suppress the fire ant populations.
1: And yeah, how do they interact with other ants? Are they aggressive to them or other particular other creatures that they're aggressive to when they're causing a problem?
2: They're very, um, I guess, aggressive and they're uh, fast reproductive rate. Right? These are fire ants now. And so that's why they're in, they're invasive. So they, you know, they have their sting and they can reproduce rapidly. So once they get a, a foothold, They can dominate the resources and push out the other, other ants or other insects. And so they kind of dominate a landscape, you know, that which makes them such a bad invasive insect. So they'll definitely reduce the biodiversity in in the area that predominate. And so, I mean, and don't get me wrong. It's not like it's a barren wasteland just with fire ants, but there are, you know, there's less and there's in some areas, especially in disturbed areas. Yeah. You'll see these nests all over the place and some areas that are particularly bad. You can walk from one nest to another. It's just oh. very bad. But then eventually they'll start to reach a somewhat of a balance. I mean, they still dominate, but there's there's other things that move in and kind of compete with them.
1: And but what and eats
2: them or what competes with them? There are other ants. I think is probably one of the best thing. The ones that that can compete with them. Before we
1: continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to twenty seven hundred plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now, back to the show. The USDA should have like an army of ant eaters, you know, that they take out like dogs to <laughs> hunt these things. You know?
2: ant eaters, I think, we don't have them here, but there's things that eat ants, I guess, but um, I, I think they would maybe cause more damage or they just wouldn't be able to compete. You know, the thing with a fire industry, you know, like other insects are very small and they can get into these small little, have a, uh, niches that, that it's hard to uh, access, they're sneaky. And that's also how they, how they spread, right? They, they get into our commodities that we uh, ship and move around, or they get into our equipment or, or they're in soil and they, they spread around. So they, they have all the attributes to spread and survive.
1: You know, the interesting is I wonder what uh, the microbiome is like. And I was thinking it would be pretty cool to um, to talk to a scientist that looked at the microbiome of venomous insects you know, across a whole bunch of the more venomous animals. And I wonder if you'd see any interesting microbes that show up. You know anyone that's looked at microbiome of uh, of ants in general and specifically fire ants?
2: Yeah, there was a group in Texas that was looking at that, uh, University of Texas. I don't know how far they have got with it. They were looking specifically at, at fire ants. I think, you know, one of my colleagues here, he's world-renowned in terms of uh, discovering fire ant uh, viruses, so it's not exactly a microbiome, but it's looking also at, you know, using genomics to screen for viruses in, in, in fire ants and in other pathogens also. So I think that's an avenue, at least for, for what we're trying to do here, is to improve our, our natural control or biological control of, of fire ants.
1: Yeah, I mean, do you know about the uh, the viruses they get or the, the creatures that infect them, their fungi that infect them, or what tends to prey upon fire ants?
2: Okay, so... When you think about fire ants or other ants, for that matter, you know, they live in the soil and they have a lot of contact with microorganisms, so they've developed or they've evolved uh, ways to combat that. So, you know, I know we know for fire ants, they, their venom is also antimicrobial or they may actually have antimicrobial secretions that help, you know, keep them clean. You know, but there are some, you know, we work with some that... Uh, I guess got around that defense and, and has impacted them. So, you know, I worked with, it's a microsporidium, but, you know, it's been reclassified as, as a fungus. It's called Thelohania solenopsy. And this was found years ago in 1970s, some preserved specimens, and they had noticed these uh, cysts or sacs in the, in the abdomen. And they opened them up and they found these, these uh, spores in there. And then, and then eventually I got into a project here that was in, Late '90s or so, or yeah, that we say. Well, you know, we know that they're here, and there was a, a student here at the University of Florida who worked with the USDA. We're, we're right close to each other, and um he was from Argentina, and so you know, he he studied it down there, and you know, looking at the the life cycle and, and some of its impacts, and it seemed to be doing something. So the next step for us was to try and bring it in into the U.S. as a biocontrol agent, and see if we can it established here. But before we did that, we actually, my former boss, they found it here naturally. They found it here anyway. It was here that we just didn't know about it. And so that opened the doors for us to work with it without all the quarantine um, uh, protocols that made it a lot easier for us to work with it. And we could document how it impacted the queen. It made her lay less eggs. It kind of debilitated her. And this is typical, a lot of uh pathogens of insects. So it's a slow, debilitating type of uh, disease that it causes and so you know we put this actually helped distribute this throughout the south and then and we found it more and more and and, then it's it's relatively prevalent but it does if we you know we carefully document it it will do reduce populations out in the field which is something that's it's hard to see with pathogens because there's so many other things out there and there's a lot of fluctuation know. in populations, but we can show that, but it's not a silver bullet. And At the time, we all thought, oh, this is great. You know, we can cause epizootics and things like that, but you no, know, you know, nature is much more, I guess, more subtle.
1: Yeah, to be careful, too, anything you introduce to try to, you know, stop the fire ants. It could affect plants. It could affect animals. I mean, it could have all kinds of side effects or unintended consequences.
2: Exactly. So, you know, it, it's a, a big effort to to bring in things that are not here naturally this we were lucky that it it had already come here before and so it was already here and and we did a lot of host specificity testing and so it didn't affect other um other species of ants in fact we still we can transfer it to other fire ants i mean you know same species only by taking their young or their brood and introducing to a colony and they'll adopt that brood and then somehow they get infected but the actual mechanism we haven't been able to figure that out neither as others you know it's just it's been a tough problem to, to actually solve because there was thoughts of you know trying to get these spores and maybe we can help disseminate it easier than instead of using live fire ant brood or babies right so yeah. if you like this podcast please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes
1: what about the venom is it called venom or is it like fire juice or what would you call the uh... The payload of the stinger.
2: So it's, um, a mixture of, uh, some alkaloids. I think that's what's causes the pain. And then and there's some proteins in there that will cause the allergic reaction. So that's
1: been studied and characterized what's in it. Yes. But there's some ants that, uh, where there's some fire ants that, I mean, does it vary seasonally in the composition? You know, has it been looked at other factors depending on what they eat that would modulate the composition
2: of the venom? That's a good question. I, I don't know the details. I know someone had studied some of those aspects, not so much the composition, but maybe the amount of venom seasonally. Yeah,
1: maybe you could deliberately feed the fire ants something which would reduce the, uh, or change the nature of the venom. So it's not so toxic. I don't know. Maybe seasonally it changes. And if you look at colonies, let's say in Tennessee versus, you know, South Texas, maybe they're different. You know, the, the ants have been here for a while. So I'm sure they've adapted and changed somewhat. It'd be interesting to compare maybe ones from you know, South America versus the ones that have come here and see what the differences are.
2: Yeah, that would be an interesting uh study to explore. And uh I don't know how you would or who would want to be a test on that.
1: Well, you know, to have the stuff injected into you, you. can, you know, I guess look in you know gas chromatograph and, yeah, that's true. and see the composition.
2: Exactly. So, right. So interesting. My uh one of my colleagues here, he developed a um kind of like a pregnancy test to help identify fire ants especially the red-imported fire ant and the black-imported fire ant. And I guess they're hybrid. Which, and those are all quarantine pests here in the United States. And so that was an issue trying to distinguish the specific species of fire ants. Because we have some native fire ants here in the United States also that are not as, you know, they sting, but they're not definitely not as bad as the red-imported fire ant. And that was based on the venom. You know, he used some of the proteins in the venom to help. I think they were unique. Okay the species
1: so what's gonna happen from here like what what are the latest efforts by uh, you know by you and other people to uh, to figure out how many of the ants are here where are they and how to control them
2: yeah so we're still working on on the pathogens um, you know again my colleague who did, did the viruses he's he's up to him, I think number fourteen now but you know and there's other groups that find um, pathogens in fire ants or even in ants. In general, but I guess the trick is to see if they do anything. We can, you can identify things that, um, you know, through the sequencing and things like that has made it much more efficient to find pathogens, but to actually take it to the next step, to make to see if it does anything that can be of use is, is a hard one. And we still are, have efforts on that. You know, there's some that people are working with the, uh, RNA interference, looking at ways to maybe, uh, block some of the, um, critical parts of the, uh, you know, the life of the, uh, Ant to help maybe use use that as a type of action. It'd be more species specific. So one of the issues with what we have now with these ant baits are they're not totally species specific. It, it, they'll, they'll, you know the, we use a oil attractant which other ants like to eat, and some of these toxins will work against them. But uh, so there's a there's a, a push that there to try and find something more specific. And but again, right now the issue also is um, delivery. So, you know, one of the most efficient ways has been the, the bait avenue, but maybe there's other ways we can work on that. But yeah. And so and again, surveillance, you know, a lot of these as fires, you know, they're spreading around the world. And, and that's a big issue is, you know, oftentimes by the time they detect it, it's too late or it's not too late, but it's it's a lot harder to control. if It's you know, they've, they've been under the radar for a while and actually know you have a complaint and then you find that it's over a fairly wide area has been spreading. So those kinds of Are
1: there things. any uh, any good things about the ants being here? Yeah, they you
2: know, they're they're part of the ecosystem. And you know, they've been here in the States for a while, and things have kind of I think some places kind of balanced out a little bit. Uh, one thing for sure is you know, they are in certain certain systems, uh sugarcane, they're a good biocontrol agent of sugarcane pests. And they'll reduce uh, some of the caterpillars that feed on that. On, on the sugar cane and even in some of our in our crops they'll feed on some of the pests there. Ticks. They're a good predator on ticks. I remember several years ago Texas had a severe drought and they were just being overrun by ticks because the fire ants were kind of suppressed due to the drought. I read one article where the you know the uh, rancher said he, he preferred to have fire ants than having all these ticks. You know, ticks also transmit disease so that's just a big issue. All right. So they do have their benefits and also their uh, costs and, and they aerate the soil and things like that.
1: Do they spread any disease, the fire ants? Or no, not that anyone can tell. Not,
2: them. yeah, not that we know. The sting is bad enough. <laughs> yeah. Why
1: do they sting? They just, they do it to disable their prey or is there another reason? Yeah, it's a
2: defensive reaction. So they'll recognize a threat and they'll send off, uh, put out pheromones, an alarm pheromone that cause them to get all agitated and they'll come out and they'll swarm and they'll sting whatever's in the area and then Interesting enough, you know, if you see a, I don't know how familiar you are with fire but you have that, that mound, and you have your queen, but they'll try and protect the queen. So they'll send all these other worker ants out to sting the intruder, but they'll take that queen and try and hustle her down to safety. It's not unlike what, I guess, we would do for
1: So which type of fire ants sting? Do all of them sting? I guess the queen can sting, but are there uh, different classes of fire ants, some that'll sting, and then other ones that come in to attack after that, or? Like, do they coordinate their behavior around the thing?
2: You mean within a colony, so... Yeah. Yeah, so the queens and the uh, males, they, they don't sting. And, and all the worker ants, regardless of their size, they can sting. So... Do they have any
1: special ways in which they attack? Do initial ones sting and then signal to other ones, now let's swarm and attack and bite? Or do they just, you know, those that sting also uh, try to attack at the same time?
2: They, you know, they're attacking at the same time time. When you say attack, you mean swarm at, at somebody. They'll, maybe there's an advanced group. You know, I'm just wondering: is
1: there an advanced, advanced group that goes in and stings, and then other ones follow up that that don't sting but just bite? And you know, maybe is there any coordination between different uh, types of ants in a colony where they attack in formations, or is it not that sophisticated? They just swarm
2: and attack. From what I've seen, and, from, and I don't think I've seen any study that looked at the coordination of attacks. And I don't think there is, as far as we can tell, or any they they. You disturb a nest, someone will come and one of the ants will come and sting you. And they, at the same time, they may be releasing pheromone, and they'll have just more and more coming out to to swarm and an attack. I think, like I said, anything in the vicinity. But generally, you, you have to agitate them. I can have ants walking on me for a little bit, and, and until they maybe I pressed on them, then they'll try and sting me. And so, you know, you look at different ant species, some are not as aggressive that you can you can press them pretty hard or they can crawl over you and they won't have this alarm reaction.
1: So, OK, well, very good. Uh, David, what's so what's ahead for the future in, in working with these ants for you?
2: We're still looking at trying to uh, if we can bring in more pathogens. Uh, there was one that we've been working on for a, uh, a while, but then, you know, working with other governments, I think there's there's these export permits and that's gotten pretty difficult. The last few years, I guess, when governments change, they have different procedures, and it's just and they're becoming, I guess, more protective of things coming out of their countries, but we'll still be working on, on pathogens there, and, and, you know, we've been expanding into other invasive ants, so just another thing to be working on, and, and we're looking at the same similar types of things, looking at pathogens, I, I, you know, we have a, our fire ant group there has a range of uh, expertise, and, you know, we, you know, work together on, on different aspects of it, so. Okay,
1: very so. good. Well, David, where can people find out more about uh, the USDA's work with fire ants and your work?
2: Yeah, so, you know, we have a, a website. So I think if you just type in USDA um, fire ants, there's two fire ant labs, one in Mississippi, and there's one here in uh, Florida, Gainesville, Florida. And, you know, both work on fire ants and other invasive ants, and you can see the whole range of things that we, we do. Well, very
1: good. David, thank you for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it.
2: Oh, Great. Well, thank you for having me. It was It was a lot of fun.